I'm going to ask maybe a vulnerable question. I, I want this to be about your childhood, okay? So this is not going to be like a recent question, but I'd be interested as I'm thinking about this intensity in the hockey game and these potential fights that are brewing, I, I want to ask, have any of you guys, when you think back to like your elementary school, middle school, maybe high school years, did you ever get in a fight? So this is, I want you to share with somebody next to you, just real quick. You can say, nope, never got in a fight. You can say, oh man, I got in a few fights. Just tell the person, did you win? Did you lose? Real quick, person next to you, did you ever get in a fight when you were a kid? were with guess who? My brothers. my brothers. My brothers. Specifically, one brother, my one brother who was just one year older than me, and uh, he was our, we were, that was our primary place where we learned how to fight. Now, I haven't had an actual physical fight since I was probably, you know, I don't know, like 15 years old. So I think I would do really poorly right now, you know, but I kind of felt like I got some practice as a kid with my brother. And I know not all siblings are like this, but in our family, at least between my older brother and I, it would get a little intense. He had a pretty short fuse and I knew how to push the buttons. Did anybody have a relationship like that with a sibling? <laughs> yeah, I see, yeah. He had a short, he, he, was a, he could lose his temper a little quickly. He was a passionate guy, and I knew exactly how to push that button to make him go, you know, just get irked. And for a while, I think when we were in elementary school, you know, it would be like you'd throw something at each other, you'd just yell at each other. But as we got older, it got a little bit more physical. I remember a couple times, one time, we ended up in a full-on fist fight in the middle of a highway while his girlfriend was in the car and a couple other girls, and I felt like, this is just a show for them, so I better go at it, you know? I can't remember who won that one, but I knew we were the uh, pretty embarrassed in front of these girls. They're like, what are you guys doing, you know? I remember another time in our household throwing a rocking chair across the house at my brother, and... Uh, uh, you'd think I would have won that one. I ended up with a black eye. Uh, I think we told my parents, you guys were actually out of the area at that point, um, that it was a football in the face. <laughs> my technique in fighting my brother was he would lose his temper. He would get intense. I would push the buttons. And I began to realize, because he was a pretty fast you know, puncher, that if I just took the punches, I would, it would make him so angry that it would feel like I won. So I, that became my technique, is he would come up, he would just start punching me, and, uh, and then I would just take them and laugh. Now, they didn't feel good, but it didn't take long before he would just be done. I mention that because there, I remember very specifically our last fight. I was probably a freshman in high school, and I don't remember what started it, but I remember getting into a fight with my brother, and I remember very clearly recognizing we can hurt each other. 
And I actually remember clearly thinking, I would hate to do something in a fight that actually ended up permanently hurting one of us or permanently hurting our relationship. I don't know what happened with that fight, but I actually remember it was the last fight we ever had, at least of that kind. There was probably some spats and some things like that. But it was interesting because there was this recognition at some point where I'm like, I don't want our relationship as brothers to continue like this. And I don't want to do something that potentially would cause a brokenness that wouldn't be repaired. It's interesting, I, I, you look around the world and the idea of brotherhood or brothers is such a significant thing, siblings. And I imagine in a room of this size, there's some of you who have had that kind of relationship with siblings that is broken and it hurts. I think it's one of the biblical gifts to humanity is, is brotherhood, family, and I think it's so good, which means when it's broken, it actually hurts so much because it's supposed to be so tight and so good. It's interesting because this idea of brother really plays out over and over throughout Scripture. I mean, you look at the beginning of Scripture, starting in Genesis, and it's hard actually to find sections that don't have to do with brothers. There's, there's constantly dealing with family and brothers. I think right at the beginning, Cain and Abel, you know, first set of brothers. Doesn't turn out so well. Jealousy, murder. You, soon after that, you've got the story of Noah. Noah, they go through the flood. And after the flood, the three brothers, Noah's three sons, come together. And there's this kind of really odd deal where one of the brothers kind of exposes his father's nakedness. And, and then there's this curse to that brother saying that his son will serve all of his brothers. And so you've got this weird like servitude to brothers coming up. I think of the patriarchs, the, the, the kind of fathers of the Jewish people. You had Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, different mothers, but there was this conflict. Who's the son of promise? We find out Isaac is, and then the question is, well, what's going to happen to Ishmael? What's going to happen to his brother? And what's going to happen to this relationship? Jacob and Esau, this story of two, and there's this sneaking and trickery and, and dysfunction in this brotherly unit. And, and then Jacob's children, he has 12 kids, the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's constantly dysfunction in the brotherhood. You've got brothers selling another brother because of jealousy and kind of family um, favoritism and pride, and he sells them into slavery. And then it seems like there's a reconciliation in the family between the brothers, but you find out later that they actually are still afraid that maybe there's something going on with the older brother. And you could go through scripture over and over again, you've got these stories of brothers. You might say, well, what does that have to do with the prophets? Well, the prophet we're going to look at today, his name's Obadiah. Uh, it's one chapter prophet, and it's about brothers. And so to really understand what's going on in Obadiah, it's like a tongue twister, to, to really understand what's happening in Obadiah and this prophecy, we have to follow the journey of two brothers that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 25. You could turn there if you want, but I'm going to kind of move through. These are mostly pretty well-known stories as we go through this. Um, there is, I'll mention this while it's up there, um, the, there's a QR code that'll pop up on the screen every once in a while. Maybe it was on there a second ago. Feel free to zap that with your phone, and it'll give you a lot of the passages that we're looking at in the Bible app, if you have that. So 
the, the, the characters we're going to look at, the two brothers that really are the foundation to this prophet and this prophecy um, is Jacob and Esau. The story starts in Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to read a couple of these early ones, but then we're going to go on from there. Genesis 25 verse 21, it says this, Isaac, that's the father, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she says, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger." This is our first introduction to this Jacob and Esau brotherhood relationship. And it's actually in the womb, we have our first insight that this is going to be a relationship of turmoil, which has been the history of almost every brother relationship so far in Scripture. And there's this struggling with these twins in the womb, and he says it's going to go beyond that. It's actually going to go to the nations that come out of them. There's going to be a constant struggle, and he says the younger will end up serving the older. Well, what happens when they're born? Verse 24 of chapter 25, it says, When their days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in the womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. They also call him um, Edom, which means red. And so you'll hear that word come up a few times, Edom. Um, verse 26, afterwards, his brother came forth and his hand, um, with his hand holding on Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when um, she gave birth, Rebecca, um, his wife gave birth to them. And, and so we have these two sons, Isaac comes out, these twins, Esau comes first, Isaac comes out, and, and again, you've got this story, this, this kind of like tension from the very beginning on the way out of the womb, Esau comes out, and Jacob is coming out holding on to Esau's heel on the way out of the womb. And it kind of gives a picture of what's to come. And many of you guys know the story of these brothers, just to walk through a few more. As they get older, the older brother in that culture had the birthright. He had the kind of the greater blessing in the family. And if you remember, at some point, Esau's really hungry. He's a man. He's been working hard. And Jacob wants his brother's birthright. And so Jacob makes up some stool, some stew, and Esau comes in and says, I want that. I'm, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And Jacob said, I'll give it to you if you give me your birthright. <laughs> he must have been hungry. He's like, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. If I'm going to die, I don't need my birthright anyway. Sure, I'll take it. And so Jacob gives him the stew, and Esau gives his birthright away. And he's criticized for it throughout Scripture. It goes on from there. It gets worse. Jacob and Esau are getting older, but their father's even getting more old. And the father realizes, Isaac, that he's going to die soon and he needs to bless the oldest son. And uh, Isaac's um, wife realizes that the blessing is going to go to Esau and wants it to go to Jacob. And so they come up with this conniving plan where um, Jacob will actually steal the blessing from his brother, that when the Isaac, who's blind, is going to bless his um, oldest son Esau, that Isaac will slip in and get the blessing instead. And you're like, how is that? Or that Jacob will slip in and get the blessing instead. And you're like, how is that going to work? And, and, and they come up with this plan. 
As Isaac tells Esau, Esau, I want you to go and get some, um, get some game, wild game, bring it to me, make me a meal, and I'll give you my blessing. Jacob finds out about it through his mom, and Jacob goes and he makes a meal out of some goats, brings it together, puts some um, goat skin on his arms because his older brother had hairy arms, and he's like, they're not going to buy into this. You guys maybe know the story. And, and Jacob comes in, and his father, Isaac, says, who is it? And he outright lies about his brother. He said, it's Esau, your oldest son. And Isaac's he's blind and he's old, but he says, are you sure? Is this really Esau? And he says, yes. And he feels his arms and he feels that hair. And he's like, it must be Esau. And he grabs him to give him the blessing and he can smell this because he puts on, Jacob had put on Esau's clothes. He can smell Esau. And so Isaac gives Jacob the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. That blessing's given. It's the blessing that the brothers of the family and the whole family would serve Jacob. It was supposed to be to Esau. So it was a big deal. And, and that so much was supposed to go to him. It's only minutes after Jacob leaves the room that Esau comes in with his meal ready. And he's like, Dad, I went out. <laughs> I got you your wild game. I've cooked it for you. I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac says, who is it? He said, it's Esau, your oldest son. And of course, his dad realizes what happened. And he said, I'm sorry. Your brother came and lied, and I already blessed him. And Esau says, isn't there a blessing still left for me? And his father ends up giving him what I would say almost sounds like a curse that he'll end up serving his brother, but one day he'll break free from his brother. So we have this growing tension throughout scripture. It says right after that happens that Esau said, when my father, he said that he held a grudge against his brother and he says, when my father dies, I will kill my brother Jacob. That's the kind of brother relationship we have going on here. It's not good. Jacob ends up fleeing because he finds out that this could be his death. And so Jacob flees and he goes away. Esau kind of has his family and Jacob begins building a family and, and has these sons, these 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel, and they grow in wealth. And eventually God says, I want you to go back. And he's like, okay, I'll go back to my land, the land I grew up in. But right away he begins thinking, what about my brother? What am I going to do? My brother must be still ready to kill me. He must be angry. And to make a long story short, they come back to the land and, and, and Jacob sends all these animals and all these gifts forward kind of to buy off his brother. But he's sure, man, my brother's going to come out and he's going to kill me. Esau comes out with 400 soldiers. And he's like, That's, it's it, it's over. But then as Jacob comes forward, Esau, it says, grabs him and gives him a big hug. And says, why did you send all those things? You're my brother. And you kind of read that and you think, oh, it's going to work out. <laughs> this relationship. But it doesn't last long. Eventually they get too big for the land. Esau ends up leaving. And the wars begin to start. 
As Esau and his people, the Edomites, grow, and Jacob and his children, the Israelites, begin to grow, we begin having war after war after war. One of the hardest things was Israel ends up going to Egypt. You guys know the story. They're enslaved there. They leave Egypt um, as God delivers them with Moses. As they're heading through the wilderness on the way back to Israel, they have to go through the land of Esau, the land of Edom. And so they send a message saying, hey, we're, we're kind of a wandering people. We have nothing. Can we please pass through your land? We won't take anything. We won't hurt anybody. We'll pay for any water we drink. Can we please pass through your land to get where we're headed? And Edom, or Esau, says, no. This nation says, you better not step foot in our land. If you come into our land, we're coming out to kill you. Again, Israel says, please, let us come through. We'll stay on the road. We won't take anything. And Edom got an army together to come and attack Israel. And Israel realized, okay, we got to go around. The battles go on and on and on through the kings of Israel. Sometimes Edom is a slave to Israel. Sometimes um, Israel is kind of working alongside Edom. Sometimes they're separated, making alliances with other nations. But it's tension, tension, tension the whole way through Scripture and that brings us to the prophecy of Obadiah. Because you look at what's going on here and you're like, there's so much history. There's so much animosity. Um, there's no sense of brotherhood anymore. And this is hundreds of years after they were born. And yet these two nations, you're like, they are absolute enemies, rivals. It doesn't seem like there's any chance there's going to be some, any sort of reconciliation. And who would even expect it? I mean, who would expect these two nations to treat each other as brothers? They've been fighting for generations now. We find out in Obadiah that God expected them to act as brothers. Go ahead and open up to Obadiah if you have your scripture there. And uh, we'll have it on the screen as well. Obadiah, it's hard to find. You can look for um, the book of Jonah. Jonah's a little easier. Sometimes people have things marked up in Jonah. It's right before Jonah. It's right after Amos. But in the book of Obadiah, this prophet is prophesying to Edom. It's one chapter, and it's the whole prophecy is going to be to Edom, which are the descendants of Esau. The Israelites would have heard it. In fact, I think it's for the benefit of the Israelites but the prophecy is against Edom. And ultimately, he's going to say, Edom, Esau, the people of Esau, you are going to be destroyed for what you've done. Like completely destroyed. In fact, he says, just like a robber would go and steal things, but once he's stolen enough, a robber's going to leave. He's not going to take everything. He's like, that's going to be different than your experience. When you get destroyed, every last little thing's going to be stolen. Not like a robber. You're going to be completely destroyed. Or like somebody who's gleaning the fields or gleaning grapes, they'll pick grapes, but they'll leave some grapes for the poor. He's like, that's not how it's going to be for you, Edom. You're going to be so destroyed, there's going to be nothing left. And it makes you ask the question, like, why? Like, why would God have this kind of anger against Edom? What have they done that would cause this? And we get to the middle of the, the book here, verse 10 it says this, and it should be up on the board here. Verse 10, it says, why? This is the question. Why would God destroy Edom? Why is he so angry through this prophet? It says, because of violence, 
to your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. I think it's interesting that God, and this is hundreds of years later, generations later, God is still expecting Edom to treat Israel like a brother. And he says, why are you going to be destroyed? The violence to your brother Jacob. You'll be covered with shame. You'll be cut off forever. What kind of violence? It's interesting. And I don't think it's going to be hard, at least it wasn't for me, to begin feeling convicted by some of this passage. What did they do that was so bad that God would say, you're going to be utterly destroyed? What is this violence that they did? Look at verse 11. It says, on the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off Israel's wealth, the foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Basically, what's the violence that they did? The violence was they didn't do anything when Israel was in trouble. It's kind of wild. God says, you're going to be punished for your violence. And you're like, okay, what did they do? Do they go in there? Do they pick a fight? And he says, no, here was the violence. Your brothers were in trouble. Your brothers were being attacked, and you sat back and watched. You didn't do anything. And he begins to say to these people that it's by doing that, by sitting back and doing nothing, it was as if they were a part of the battle themselves. Verse 12, do not gloat over your brother's day. Don't boast about what happened to them, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their distress. Yes, do not gloat over their calamity. It's like you're sitting back watching and just happy that your brother is being destroyed. Don't do that. That's not how brothers treat each other. In the day of his disaster, do not loot their wealth. In the day of their disaster, verse 14, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. It's hard to know whether as they sat back and watched, then they came in and took advantage or whether God's saying, by sitting back and watching, it was as if you were doing everything that Babylon did because you didn't lift a finger to help your brother. You might ask the question, well, why? Why wouldn't they at least go and help? Of course, you could say, well, there's a history there. But I think Obadiah gives us some more information on why they didn't step up, why they didn't help. Look at verse 3. It says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, the Edomites had settled in a mountainous region. It was a region, a lot of people connect it to modern day Petra. Um, and if you've ever seen the pictures of Petra, it's got kind of that Really cool. It's in Raider, or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if you've ever seen that movie. Like just these cool stone structure. You have to get through a narrow canyon. That wasn't actually built at that time. And we don't know if that's where Edom was, but it was probably in that region. And what the Edomites thought, they said, hey, we're secure here. 
We're safe on our mountaintop. Nobody can attack us. Nobody can get us as long as we stay there. If we go help Israel, what's going to happen? We have to leave our place of safety. And so the first reason why they don't help is they're enjoying their security. They're in a safe place up in the mountains. But God says, I can get you there. You're not safe from me. What else was it? Verse 5. He says, if thieves come to you, um, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some for the gleanings? Oh, Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. In this little passage, we have kind of an agreement with what culture says, the extra biblical understanding that Edom had actually been becoming wealthy as they taxed the people who traveled through this area and they had the high ground. And so they began getting wealthy as a nation and they were in this secure place in the mountains, stashing away all their wealth. Another reason they didn't go. We're set. We're safe. We're wealthy. Verse seven, all the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding of him. Will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy the white, well, it comes next. So the, the, the next thing is they had relationships. They had allies. And, and even as God says, you think your allies are keeping you strong? You've got security on the mountains. You've got wealth. You've got friends allies from other nations. He's like, that's not going to save you. But again, we see, why didn't they come help? We've got enough help from other people. We don't need to get involved in this situation down here. And finally, in verse 8 and 9, he says, will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by a slaughter. They were wise. They stayed out of the battle that was going on. They kind of boasted in their wisdom. And God's like, your wise men are going to be destroyed. Why didn't the brother Esau help Israel? Well, yes, there's a history, but part of it is they were safe and secure. They had wealth. They had relationships and allies, and they felt like they were pretty wise doing what they were doing. Why get involved in somebody else's problem? And it was also Israel's fault that they were in trouble in the first place. As Babylon, the ones who took over their nation, came in, Israel were the ones who worshipped other gods and kind of riled up their god to send Babylon. It's like Israel can deal with their own issues. They were foolish. But God says, no, you should have helped your brothers. But you stood back and watched. Again, I read this, and of course, this is so long ago, but I can't help but seeing the parallels in my life. Whether we talk about it on a national level, and I want to be careful there, but I can't not say it, right? That here God is talking to a nation, and, and of course, there was a brother relationship here, but he's saying to this nation, you did not reach out and help. You sat by and watched, and you look at the list of things. You were secure, 
You were wealthy, you had allies, relationships, and you were wise. And it's their fault they're in trouble anyway. Enough said. I mean, I look at it, you know, again, I don't want to go farther there than that. But there's a, there's a national side of that that I have to say, man, am I Edom? Am I Esau? There's a community side to it. How are we engaging our community when there's people who are going through hard times? And, 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 and I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying this to me. Because as I'm studying through this, I'm like, when do I, how often am I out there attacking people in my community in Grand County? Hopefully never. But how often do I sit back and just watch? How often do I hear of a need and hope somebody else meets it? Security, wealth, relationships, wisdom. It's their problem. There's a church side to it. And I hope it's not stepping on toes too much, but we're the church, right? (laughs) I've been in church long enough. I've been in church long enough to see the darkness in my own heart. Well, you can look at another church and you see things going wrong and you sit back and watch to see what happens. Or you see a pastor get in trouble and there's that little bit of thought, like maybe we'll have some more people coming over here then. What a dark thought, right? And maybe nobody else has the darkness in their heart that I do. But I know my heart. And I know sometimes I'm an Edomite. Security, wealth, relationships, wisdom. Oh, it's their problem. Let them deal with it. And we sit back and we let it happen. Or individually. And of course, this is the primary place, I think, where the Lord, I believe, wants to reach into our hearts and says, where in your life are you sitting back? Dan, where am I sitting back? And I know of friends in the community, friends that are hurting, friends that are going through hard times, and I end up sitting back, doing nothing. And according to God's judgment on Obadiah, if it would be the same, he would say, It's your violence. You've done it because you've done nothing. Why do I not step in? Why do I not come to help? I'll tell you, it's often security. I'm feeling pretty good where I am. And our number one way, I mean, we are in the mountains, (laughs) but our primary security, I think, is comfort. That will hurt my comfort to step in. I, don't, I can't do the things I want to do if I step in. If I get into the mess of this relationship or what's hurting in someone's life, that threatens my security. Wealth, that might cost me something. If I jump in on that, that might, I've got a plan. I've got a financial plan for how we're moving forward, and it's all lined out, and my advisors kind of work through how it's all going to work out. That won't, I don't think my, my financial advisor would agree with me jumping into this situation because <laughs> it might cost me something. So I'll just watch to see what else happens. Relationships. If I get messed up in that, that might affect something else and a different relationship, and others might not like that, and we play that game. Wisdom, that's foolishness. It's not wisdom. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't get involved. It's their fault. It's their problem. I look at that, and I don't mean to be a guilt trip, but I feel the conviction personally. 
It's so amazing. As I began looking at this, I began thinking about the person of Jesus. What has he done? What did Christ do? Look at these passages. I'm going to point up on the board here because we're going to fly through them. Look at this, what it says about Jesus. Go ahead and flip to the one with Hebrews. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. It says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. This is talking about Jesus. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them us brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't step back. Jesus didn't stand back and watch to see what would happen. He says, I will declare um, your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Next passage there. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death, we might break, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus was not afraid to say, you're my brothers. You're my sisters. I'll step in. And let's look at his security. Next slide there. Security. This is talking about Jesus. It says, although he existed in the form of God, is there anything more secure than that? He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death, even death on a cross. You cannot get more security than what Christ had. And yet he left it to help his brethren. What about wealth? I love this from 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How about his friendships, his relationships, alliances? Surely our griefs from Isaiah, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. People assumed God was against Christ. The greatest alliance, the greatest relationship that could be, and yet people looked at it and said, God is against him. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. The wrath of God on Christ. The greatest alliance, the greatest relationship, Christ with the Father, the Father and the Son. And yet he was willing to have the wrath of his Father on him instead of us. How about wisdom? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the wisdom of what Jesus did. He says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. It did not look like wisdom. And when I think about us, me saying, well, that's their own problem. They can deal with it. This was not God's problem. This was not Jesus's problem. This was all of our problem. And yet, he stepped in as a brother. 
I look at Edom and, and here they are and they will not step in as a brother and God says, that is wrong. You should have stepped in. And I look at it and I look at Christ and I was like, wow, look how he stepped in. And I look at my life and I think about my security and my wealth and my you know, wisdom and my friendships and, and all those things that keep me back. And I look at the pain and the hurt and I'm like, Lord, what does it look like? How do I help? I love this Philippians passage that we looked at. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, I don't want you to be Edomites. I want you to be like Christ, who gave up his security, who didn't hold on to his wealth, who didn't kind of say, I got to keep my alliances and my relationships. I don't want to lose those. Who, who even said, I'll do what seems foolishness to humanity. And he says, I want you to have that kind of heart attitude. Well, again, if you're like me, that sounds a little overwhelming. I think it was about a week ago, I was thinking about a number of people in town. I was going through a list of names that I had and thinking about all the things that they were going through and starting to feel like, man, I haven't called that person. I haven't reached out to that person. I said I would connect with that person. I haven't done it. And I was going through this list and I just began to feel like anxious and burdened. And I'm like, there is no, how can I connect with everybody? Like, how can I meet all these needs? Because there is so much pain. Take it away from the national side or the community side or the, the church side. If I'm just talking individually, people I know in our community or away from our community, but people I personally know that are hurting, I'm like, I don't have the capacity. I can't do it. Even if I wanted to give up my security and my wealth and my you know, alliances and my wisdom, like who do I help? Because I can't help everybody. And I love it because as you read the Gospels, you realize Jesus actually didn't help everybody. There were times where he left and people still needed help. Well, how did he know? How did he know who to help? Because he really did help people. We were supposed to have the attitude of Christ. Well, how did he know who to help? How did he know when to step in? And he says, I did the will of my father. I do what my father tells me to do. I love this passage where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. It, farther down, it goes to this next verse. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It sounds like there's a part of our salvation, a part of our life as believers that's supposed to have that kind of tension. Like, what am I supposed to do? In, in fear and trembling, you're like, God, I, want to, I don't want to be an Edomite. I want to serve my brothers. I want to serve those who are hurting. But I, I'm, there's this tension because I don't know how to help everybody. I don't know what to do, and I don't even have it in my heart because there's darkness in there still, even though Christ has died for it. And I love where he goes in verse 13. He says, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, if you were going to list everybody who's hurting in the world and think, I've got to be their savior, you can't do it. It's too much. There's only one savior. It's Jesus. He died on a cross, but he was raised again to new life so that he could live in you 
and in me so he could continue to save the world, both spiritually, but also, I think, coming to help with physical and emotional needs to reach them with the spiritual truth of eternal life. So what do we do? I think what we do is we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, help me know. Help me know who to reach out to. Help me know how to be your hands and feet. Help me know how to speak the words of Christ. Help me know how to have the heart of you. And the only way we can have his heart is by having his life, which you have if you're a believer in Christ. He's given you his life. Lord, help me live your life in this world. But part of that, I think, is saying, I need to be open-handed. He may not take away my security, my comfort. He may, he may let me keep that. But am I holding on to it or am I letting go? He may let me keep my wealth. But am I holding it like this or am I saying, God, it's yours. If you want to use it for somebody else, I'm listening. He may let me keep my relationships. But am I holding them open-handed saying, these are yours. They're on the table for you to use. He may let me keep my wisdom. Or he may say, I want you to do something foolish but I'm asking you to do it. We're going to have communion together. And as we celebrate communion, one of the things we do is remember what Christ has done, that he didn't hold on to his security. He didn't hold on to wealth. He didn't hold on to his alliances. He didn't hold on to his wisdom, but he was willing to step into our pain for us. And so part of communion together, if you're a believer in Christ, we have it in the back, is to, to take communion as a recognition and saying, thank you. Thank you that you didn't stay back. Maybe you've never actually said thank you to Jesus. That's what it means to become a follower of him is to say, I believe what you did and I just want to thank you for it. I believe. Do that today. But I think the other side of it is to say, God, as I drink this cup representing your blood and eat this bread representing your body, that I'm also representing that you gave me your life so that you could continue impacting the world for your kingdom. And so have it be a thank you, but also a prayer. Lord, help me have open hands with my security, my wealth, my friendships, my relationships, my wisdom. Help me have open hands. And Lord, show me. Point to the person who needs me this week. I can't, read it. I can't meet everybody's needs. I can't meet anybody's needs. But I know you can, and I know you want to through me. There's a lot of people in here representing Grand County. It's a lot of helping hands if we let the Lord work. I'm going to invite the worship team up to end us with this song. And as you take communion, again, I encourage you, thank the Lord for what he's done and ask him to direct you to be a brother to those around you.